So um, what I'm doing these uh, Mondays for a while now is uh, slowly going through the different exercises of mindfulness, different practices of mindfulness that's given in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundation of mindfulness, on establishing mindfulness that the Buddha uh, gave. And um, there's something like, um, I, have, I have to count again because now I'm a little bit confused about how to count because of, um, but anyway, there's something like uh, 19 exercises given in the text. And um, it's a source for the kind of mindfulness practice we do here, this text, so it's a kind of a derived source because over the centuries, the practice has evolved somewhat and developed. And so rather than taking it directly from here, the practice we do at IMC, it's more kind of evolved from this core text. But really, people go over and over, go over and over again, go back to this text, this particular discourse uh, for inspiration, for guidance, how to practice. And it's kind of like the standard or the reference for for how to do vipassana practice. Um, and uh, some people are quite surprised. Uh, to learn what some of the exercises are. Because um, if they've been in particular traditions of Vipassana, like at IMC or with Goenka or different places, um, they tend to choose certain sections or certain aspects of the text and emphasize those. So um, the in our tradition that we, you know, IMC is part of, it tends to be more a um, um, uh, kind of mindfulness that is non-reactive and non-evaluative where you wouldn't kind of engage and try to manipulate your experience. You would just let your experience be as it is. And some people think that's what mindfulness is. Just be aware of your experience, what your experience is and leave it alone. But some of, the, uh, some of this practice here um, is actually quite involved. And actually not only, you know, it does, does involve a little bit changing your experience. Um, some of it involves uh, more than just being aware of things as they are, uh, but being aware of things in a particular way, kind of particular focus. In particular, the next one is uh, sometimes the biggest surprise. What's this doing here? Um, I was thinking of doing show and tell as a way, or something as a way of kind of, um, you know, kind of illustrating this section. And we have uh, at home in our lawn uh, this metal bucket um, full of bones and vertebrae, and they're, they're soaking because there's still kind of like you know meat and stuff on it, or something like that. Um, my wife's a botanist, and uh, she does field uh, psychologist. She does field work out on some of the open space districts in, in the, on the peninsula. And she came back uh, last Friday or some point, uh, Monday, I don't know, recently, with um, all these bones that uh, and uh, in the vertebrae, long long vertebrae, and still hanging together, kind of. And I thought I'd have having it here in the bucket, you know. And um, maybe some of you wouldn't have known what kind of vertebrae was, you know, kind of spilling over from this bucket. And, and um, but I, I didn't. <laughs> anyway, the uh, this particular exercise is um, it's called it's the nine charnel ground contemplations. So this involves going to a charnel ground. Now in ancient India. Uh, apparently, uh, they didn't bury people that commonly. They do have the custom of burning people. I don't know when they started doing that. And they st- still, people that get burned in India to this day, you can go down to Varanasi and the, the, the burning docks there and, and watch the bodies being burnt. Sometimes bodies are thrown into the rivers, and, and you can also take the ferry boat or the boat, the rowboats out into the river and, 
at uh, the Ganges in uh, Varanasi. And, um, you know, just a little rowboat. You're out there in a little rowboat. And, and you kind of look over the edge and there's a body that's floating by. Because some, certain, that's one way of disposing bodies is you put them, just put them in the river and let them kind of, the river take them. And, um, and in Tibet, there's the practice of um, uh, feeding uh, corpses to, uh, I guess, the vultures. Uh, so they go up in these high mountain places. And I've seen photographs and movies, I forget which it is now, of, I guess, these people whose job is to cut up the flesh. I thought you, first I thought, when I heard about this, I thought you just left the body up there naked, you know. And the birds would come down and take care of it, but apparently they take this flesh, they cut off the flesh, and so that's easy for the birds to get it and clean clean the bones quickly. Um, and um, and I think my understanding, part of the reason why they do this in, in Tibet is that it's uh, difficult to bury people in the very high mountains of Tibet. The soil is not so deep, and it's a lot of work to, to do that. And so this is a way of kind of cleanly disposing of the corpse and the body and returning it to nature in a way. And so, um, in, at least in the ancient times in India, uh, one of the customs uh, was uh, that these charnel grounds, where sometimes they just bring the bodies out there and leave them there in the charnel ground, uh, on, on, the, on the surface of the ground. They wouldn't bury them. And so then the local animals would come and whatever would come and slowly do their thing, or the body would just sit there for a while and get bloated and do all kinds of interesting things that, that corpses do. And... Um, and there'd be this place you could do that. And, um, and in Thailand, they have uh, places where they burn corpses. They still burn them outdoors, apparently. And uh, at least they did until very recently. And, um, and uh, some, uh, um, some, some, anyway, so you can go and see these places. You can go and hang out there at these places they burn the bodies. And sometimes they leave the bodies there unattended as they're kind of smoldering and, you know, the last stages of their burning. So, so this is about charnel ground contemplation, going, uh, about contemplation and mindfulness established through the idea of a charnel ground. So bear with me. I know it's gruesome. And some of you are wondering, why did I come tonight? <laughs> <laughs> and some of you who might be brand new to Buddhism and to Buddhist meditation, you know, what have I gotten myself involved in here? <laughs> I just thought, you know, stress reduction. And, you know. <laughs> Listen to the people. These are the people who love to do loving kindness meditation. And so here it says, again, bhikkhus. And bhikkhus is uh, the word for a monk, but the commentaries make it explicit that bhikkhu means anybody who is a serious practitioner. Again, bhikkhus, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter. A bhikkhu compares this same body with thus, like this. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is, it is not exempt from that fate. In this way, he or she abides contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, that, too, is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or various kinds of worms, a bhikkhu compares this same body with us. This body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. 
it is not exempt from that fate. In this way, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews, sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews, or disconnected bones (coughs) scattered in all directions, here a hand bone, there a foot bone, here a shin bone, there a thigh bone, here a hip bone, there a backbone, here a rib bone, there a breastbone, here an arm bone, there a shoulder bone, here a neck bone, there a jaw bone, here a tooth, there a skull. A bhikkhu compares this same body with us. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in the charnel ground, bones bleached white, the color of shells, Bones heaped up, more than a year old. Bones rotted and crumbled to dust. A bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that nature. In this way, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that too is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. So, um, I don't know how easy it is to go to a charnel ground anymore, but I do know that this is a practice uh, that's uh, uh, inspired uh, many people uh, in Asia, and Southeast Asia, monks particularly, to do something comparable. When um, uh, some monks uh, will have, um, will get photographs of uh, dead bodies, sometimes bodies that have sometimes in states of decay or sometimes uh, 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 corpses that have uh, people injured injured pretty dramatically from like automobile accidents and they'll have those pictures of those bodies on their in their bedroom on their walls once i sent a book uh, no i sent something a present to an abbot in thailand an american right canadian uh, 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 ordained in the thai tradition been there for 20 25 30 years i don't know and um, was an abbot of a monastery, thriving monastery. So I said, and he sent me a very nice uh, thank you card letter back. Um, it was lovely to get this you know, very warm and very friendly, and and um, you know, and then as a, as kind of a gesture of kind of generosity in return, um, he sent me a gift. And in the envelope was a photograph of a uh, partially burned corpse. And then uh, some people, what? <laughs> and uh, and then uh, they have in Bangkok they have a forensic museum, and uh, it's near near the I don't know what it would be called a medical museum, and uh, I was going to try to go to the medical museum where they show all these body parts and stuff, but I ended up in the forensic museum where they show body parts, but then they have knives stuck in them and bullet holes and, and all these interesting stuff. And, um, but I was, you know, I was, you know, I'd heard that this was a practice of spending time with 
corpses and you know doing this thing with the charnel ground based on this thing. So it's still it's still something that people try to do in their own ways. This particular practice. I've thought of taking students from us, from our group and maybe taking them to if we can get access, maybe to Stanford Medical Center and and visit the anatomy class there and spend some time with a corpse. And so it's not just a practice that's talked about in ancient texts, but it's still done to some degree in modern Buddhism. And the ultimate function of this, it says, is to develop, develop become independent, not clinging to anything in the world, which is another kind of way of saying become free. So now I'll ask you, Yes. If you wish to do this practice, go to a nursing home. Two doors down. <laughs> to the Alzheimer's units. Mm-hmm. If you wish to get an intimate sense of um, what happens to bodies, you can't do it at Stanford University. I did it at. This, this body, too, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So now the question is for you. So I'm, you know, I'm, um, I realize this you know, is for, very foreign to many of you and maybe gruesome and wondering you know, what place this has in a spiritual tradition and, and Buddhist practice. But I'd like to ask you, why do you think this is in, in, uh, in, in Buddhist, why it's considered a Buddhist practice and why it would be uh, included in instructions on establishing mindfulness, <laughs> establishing bring, uh, a way of helping helping one uh, bring a mindful presence to this life that we live. What, what is it? What's the value of this? Yes, Mark. I think we have almost an innate blockage to see um, maybe beyond where we were. Like I remember as a teenager looking at people, you know, 30, 40 years old. I just couldn't imagine being like them or like that. And now it's, you know, I'm, I'm way past it myself, but it's still like, you know, people 80, people in nursing homes, I still have trouble connecting that that's, I'm going to be there. It's getting easier, but it's still difficult. And I think that, you know, the whole truth about impermanence is something that really takes a lot of practice and a lot of focus to Great, thank you. Yes? I think it's um, coming face to face with a fear of death, also. So, coming face to face with a fear of death. Great. Yes? A little different than on this. I don't know if we ever talked about it, but being around people as they die, I feel like that's been a gift to be around people as they die. And it's not as gruesome, it's not like gruesome like what you're talking about here, but does get you very much in touch with the people you know and love or whatever. Does he ever talk about that? Does he ever talk about that? Spe- dying? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, there, there are, there are, there are uh, uh, stories of when, I don't know if the Buddha, but certainly stories of, of uh, monks who were with people and um, counseling people as they were dying. There was one, uh, most famous one that I know of uh, was, uh, I think it was Shariputra was counseling some man who was dying and g- giving him kind of practice to do while he was dying. 
And uh, afterwards, he went to the Buddha and told him what he did. And the Buddha reprimanded him and said, Oh, you gave him the wrong practice to do. <laughs> uh, this man had the opportunity to get enlightened. If you'd give him in a practice that leads to enlightenment. And he said he gave him a practice that led to a, a rebirth in the heavenly realms. Yes? So a um, so there's kind of a peacefulness, a reassurance that sets in when a person no longer identifies with the body, thinking the body is who I am. Is that right? Right? Yes. I, when I hear this, I always think it's to put things in perspective. And also the other thing I think of is times of the essence. So they put things in perspective and, and the time is of the essence because you never know when it's going to happen. Yes? I think it really goes to the heart of mindfulness. We spend so much of our time with our minds in the future worrying about what's going to happen next, our minds in the past about what's happened. And This meditation, I was just reading this the other day, um, allows you to, no matter what you do in the future, this is what's going to happen to all of us. So focus on the present, focus on the impermanence, Focus on the emptiness of everything, uh-huh. and the future is going to happen no matter what we do. I suspect that a lot of people will find themselves very present if they walk through a charnel ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, there's also a, a book that's come out recently of a, a woman photographer. I can't remember the name. Who's taken pictures of? Um, there's a site where they they follow the decay of bodies, and I've just ordered it. I haven't gotten it in yet, mm-hmm. but I'll. Great. Thank you. It's kind of an artwork look at all of this. I was just going to say um, there are a few people that are at the, you know, what do you call it? I feel like coming to the end of the circle of life. And um, if there isn't a fear of death, I've seen it. I've had my mother and my father both uh, die before me, and it's so peaceful that. That's, there's no level of fear. And I think what this does is just cement it, and it's the reason that I've gotten into this this late in my life, is that the most important thing in the world is right now. I mean, I know perfectly well. I've, I've got good health and all, and that's very precious, and, and I feel very grateful. So that's my concentration, and whatever is done to the body, in a way it might be better to recycle them, the kind of population we're growing in this earth, that maybe they've got the right idea. So the most important, so this kind of contemplation reinforces that right now is the most important time, and that as for our body, uh, with population growth and all that, maybe it's better to recycle it. It would would be, because even the, you know, we keep saying, well, and friends will say, well, get cremated, but that's good for the earth. Yes. And there's a, there's, a, there's a movement of green, green burial, which uh, involves no formaldehyde and just uh, putting the body in a simple cardboard casket or pine casket and letting it decompose someplace. So it goes back. And it's kind of nice because, you know, the, so, so someone has said the, the body is made up of, um, 
It's just made up of recycled materials anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then just to uh, take off a little bit on what you said, that uh, the present moment is the most important. Uh, from a certain analysis that Buddhism offers, um, the, uh, the present moment, the, the, the now, present, is the only thing that's re- real. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be connected to what's real, you would be connected mm-hmm. to what's present. So compassion is loving, accepting, and a sense of our shared humanity in that that situation. Thank you. Smita. So she says she her her practice is um, similar. I mean, her, her way of doing this is um, she has until recently she thought she would uh, cremate her body and have the ashes spread out in the bay beyond the baylands there, where she goes for a walk once a week. So once a week she gets a chance to go and look and see where her ashes are going to go. Some people will go and sit if they have a, if they have a grave site that, that you know it's been the plot someplace that's been planned. They'll go visit that plot periodically and they'll like, this is where I'll rest. Um, similar. And I've heard of Catholic monks who would have um, keep a, uh, the, uh, the casket they're going to be buried in uh, in their room. And, you know, just as a reminder, it's always there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the initial aversion um, that arises when you see death or mayhem or you know, gruesomeness. But, it, you know, the teaching is also really, hopefully, if we really pay attention to it, is another aspect of interconnectedness that, as this gentleman said, we'll all be gone in 150 years. Some of us. (laughs) (laughs) I I might be, you know, technology, but basing on the idea of interconnectedness, you know, not just the idea of aversion and confronting our deaths and, and so forth, but the underlying teaching as well 
as if this this is what connects us yeah. all as human beings. Yeah, Be- beautiful. So that, so this kind of uh, practice is also a practice that of interconnectedness, reeling interconnectedness with life and and, uh, and share with, and with the bones. With the bones and mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, Buddha Dasa, who was one of the greatest uh, meditation masters in Thailand in the last century, he died in old age. But his explicit instructions were to... Um, he had a forest monastery that he kind of spent most of the time outdoors. and He had an outdoor kind of section where they did their chanting rather than indoor kind of, you know, hall for worship. And... Um, and he, his instruction when he died was that his body was just taken out into the woods there and uh, just propped up against a tree and let nature take its course. And partly to, as a teaching, his final teaching, about uh, nature and how nature works. And, you know, it's, all, it's all nature, it's all natural, it's all part of the natural world. And rather than being horrified by it, to appreciate that natural aspect. But he didn't get his wish because he was too famous. What? He didn't. He didn't get his wish because he was too famous. It, uh, so all these important people got involved, and they had a really big state uh, cremation and everything. Because, yeah. Contemplate. What you said was great. I mean, the idea of, of using uh, reality as it is as a contemplation of death. In our society, often, you know, it's often been pointed out how in American society, it's often death is often hidden. You don't see, we don't see it so much. It's kind of prettied up and hidden. Whereas in other cultures, it's quite a public thing, uh, death for various reasons. Um, uh, the first corpse I saw was when I was 11, and was not in America. It was in Nepal where there was a course being carried down to a river to some place to get burned. And um, because you, you, people were carrying the corpse in a stretcher, and 
the corpse was basically exposed and and um, but you're saying you know, there's lots of opportunities to contemplate death uh, because the media and uh, you know things like that and I think it definitely can be used as a contemplation I think it's important to use it for something besides numbing out or getting insensitive or getting more afraid or more outraged um, we have the opportunity here on this street corner to do this kind of contemplation on Thursday and Friday mornings. And uh, those of you who haven't been here, we have um, Planned Parenthood is across the street. And I, it, seems that it seems that they do abortions there. And so there's an anti-abortion protester um, who's there every Thursday, Friday morning. And I think it's a professional job he has. Or, you know, it's, it's, again, he gets a support for it from somewhere. And, uh, and he has these very uh, dramatic... Uh, vivid photographs of um, aborted babies, you know, big blown-up posters. And uh, so, one way, to t- one way to see that and take that is to think about that, uh, you know, try to you know, put aside a little bit for the moment uh, what, why, why that, why it's there and what he's trying to do, and just look at it and recognize that this is the nature also of what death is like. And, um, Your comments also made me think that um, you know there's, there's also kind of a, a tragic side to death, a difficult side, um, and you know what we see in the media, for example, and it's tragic that it sometimes gets glorified death. It's tragic what happens. You know, you can count how, people have counted how many people get killed on on uh, television every night, and you know some astronomical number. If you watch two hours of television, you see 32 people get killed, and um, and uh, that's kind of tragic, that kind of input. And then there's a tragedy of just the reality of the way people die sometimes and the violence in the world. I hope that it's uh, rather than becoming numb or afraid or angry, it becomes uh, certainly something that generates compassion. And uh, because compassion is empowering, and compassion is something that becomes a source for acting and doing something uh, to make a difference in the world. But certainly I think this kind of a meditation practice is meant not to be um, something to take us away from the world or numb out, but rather kind of wake up and be present in a very realistic way. Uh, one com- uh, yeah, Let's see. I, uh, 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 I'd like to make one more comment about the text that uh, uh, you might not have noticed as I read it. It says here, in each of these exercises, the nine charnel ground exercises, um, again, bhikkhus, as though one were to see a corpse, and the expression, as though. And this in the tradition is sometimes interpreted to mean that it doesn't actually require going actually to the charnel ground and actually sitting with a corpse. It's a visualization practice. You visualize this. You sit and imagine this. You're using your powers of imagination. And um, so that, for some people, puts a little bit different spin or context of what actually the practice is. So, yes, Unless you were working on a hand, the 
seems, seems odd. It's a fir- at first thought, it seems odd to treat someone like that or to, not to really confront it. On the other hand, I know that sometimes medical school is so intense overall. Maybe anything to reduce the intensity <laughs> is helpful. The, um, when I was in, uh, a freshman in college, I took a drawing class. And halfway through the quarter, this is at, uh, at UC Davis, no, UC Santa Barbara, um, the professor took us uh, twice, uh, twice during one week, to the anatomy lab, and they rolled out George. And, um, and there was no, nothing, he was, you know, nothing was covering any part of him. And, um, and that, the idea was we were supposed to draw him. And his, 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 the reason he gave to us for that exercise was that his students always drew a lot stronger after that. These words, and um, so the, I went twice, so two days, three hours each time to draw. And the first time I went, I drew the foot uh, because the foot was about as far away <laughs> from dealing with this and kind of confronting this as I could get. I had to draw, you know. And so then the next time I went, I realized what I'd done. It was an avoidance. So the next time I went, I drew the face. And uh, it was kind of dramatic in many ways. And not only because it was a corpse, but because the corpse rolled out and he said, the, the technician or whatever said, uh, what part would you like to draw? And uh, what do you mean, what part? You see, you know, it's, the guy's naked. And then he started peeling away, you know, parts of the body like it was a banana. Because he'd already been cut in various ways. So you could want to, if you wanted to see muscles or the bone or, you know, you see different parts. And um, it was very, very strong experience for me. Very powerful to spend this time with it. So the, the ultimate aim for this is in some way to uh, use this as a way to find freedom, not clinging to anything in the world. And um, if it has the opposite effect, if it's depressing or discouraging, or then probably this is not the right meditation practice or the right way to practice at a particular time. And uh, I can well imagine for some people at times it could be that way. Um, I think of freedom, this uh, abiding independent, not clinging to anything in the world, as being basically synonymous to having a, a, a heart that's uh, ready for compassion also. I think in every culture, uh, there's a different relationship to death and what, what death, what sitting with death means. And it's been pointed out by anthropologists that um, in the West, in America, when uh, Buddhist teachers and people talk about this particular kind of practice of spending time with a corpse or contemplating a corpse, it's usually done with the, with the rationale that it helps to put your life in, in perspective and helps you straighten out your priorities and really get a sense of what's most important. And the same anthropologists, I say, that if you go back and read the ancient Buddhist texts and you know how, how not the ancient, but the, how the practice is done in Asia, they, they usually don't give that as a rationale for this practice there, but they usually give it rather as uh, the rationale as helping a person disidentify and free oneself from the attachments to one's own body, as the primary one. Yes.
It's a really, it's really an equalizer. So he said that uh, this, this exercise can also teach us not to hate other people, right? Be envious of them, because they too will be in that state. So, that, so you know, both they'll, they'll, you know, they'll be dead, they'll be corpse at some point, but also um, most people will uh, die. Uh, you know, we'll, get, we'll go through the normal, normal or universal kind of aspects of life: sickness, old age, and death, some some form or other. And sometimes to realize that we all share that nature. That part of um, Buddhist spirituality, one of the strong emphases of Buddhist spirituality, it, it has been historically or whatever, is to focus on that aspect of our experience which is universal, as opposed to that aspect which is individualistic. And um, so a lot of the wisdom then comes from recognizing what's universal rather than recognizing what's particular with me. We use the word insight. And in the psychological West, people often think insight means insight, psychological insight into what's particular about how I tick, how I work. That you know, but uh, in traditional Buddhism, insight is not into what's particular to yourself, but rather those very deep insights where you understand that what that aspects of yourself, which is also universal, what we share with everyone, and that that uh, gives birth to freedom and to compassion. Last thing. I have a problem. Maybe I hope you don't have the opportunity. No, I mean, <laughs> in, the, in, your, in your imagination, yes. 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 Maybe, maybe I don't. I don't know. I, I, I don't. Uh, usually, when I mean this, in this kind of example, in the way that uh, I've been, I know that monastics and people do it in Asia. It's um, unless it's in a monastery where it's a fellow monk or the abbot or something like that. Um, it's usually people you don't have a close relationship with. So, it's, so, so there's a kind of impersonal distance, and. Um, it's said in the ancient text that, um, uh, I think it says, I might be making it up here, but or getting, confused, getting confused about it, that if it gives rise to fear or regret or grief, then one shouldn't do that, shouldn't do that practice that way. So I can imagine when it's a loved one that, um, you know, that maybe, it's not, maybe that's not the right place to do that kind of, this kind of exercise. I don't maybe. So um, I hope this evening was uh, useful, significant, or in some way for each of you. It's, uh, the contemplation of death is a very important uh, practice in Buddhism. There's different ways of doing it, some of them which are a lot less gruesome than this. Um, and uh, it's considered to be one of the meditation practices which is universally useful for people. Um, so anyway, it's an important meditation practice in its own right. I hope that it was useful for you tonight. If um, it hasn't been useful for you, then I would encourage you to leave every single part of this evening's discussion here in this room when you leave. (laughs) Thank you all very much.